Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the commodities sector and the people within it. I'm your host, Paul Chapman. On November 10th, I moderated a panel focused on sustainability and profitability in commodities trading at the Reuters Commodity Trading Summit. On the panel were Matthew Chamberlain, CEO of the London Metals Exchange, and Drew Lichter, Vice President of Corporate Development and Strategy at the Mobius Risk Group. We discussed some of the products out there that exist and yet to be developed that will enable sustainable trading. We discussed trust, tracking, and certification. And finally, we discussed the drivers to go to more sustainable trading and whether those are compatible with profitability. I guess my first question is for you, Matt. Outside of a specific carbon pricing product, um, is the current suite of products across energy, metals, ags, are they sufficient for consumers and traders, given participants can discount or add a premium to those contracts based on the sustainability attributes they're looking for? Or do we need an entirely new suite of products that solve for those attributes? And if so, who should be responsible for designing them? So I think that's, that's a great question. And to answer it, you really have to see sustainability in its broader sense. So I think there's there's two distinct two different sort of buckets here that I would that I would draw out. The first bucket are what I call the binary or the threshold conditions, and these are primarily on the human development side of sustainability. So things like avoiding worse forms of child labor, avoiding conflict financing where there is a effectively a global consensus that those are bad things that should not be allowed to happen in supply chains. And so for them, I think the real challenge is not about building new products because there isn't a need for a non-child labor product because that suggests there's a need for a child labor product, which nobody would want to see. The challenge is making sure that our existing contracts, so what we have, for example, on the LME, our base metals contracts, that they have an appropriate framework of rules and verification around them so that when you're buying that commodity from the you know, on the exchange or using an LME listed brand, you know that those forms of abuse are not there in the supply chain. And, and, you know, I think that's hugely important. Uh, and that's really a rules challenge. So that's sort of where we're spending a lot of time on that first bucket. The second bucket is what I describe as the uh, the spectrum issue. So, so this, I mean, and the best example from, from my world is uh, a carbon footprint in, in aluminium. So there, you know, we don't have a situation at the moment where there is a global consensus that two tons or four tons or eight tons of, uh, of carbon dioxide per ton of, of aluminium is where we should be. There's a lot of different views on that. And we wouldn't want to take sources of aluminum out of the market because they are themselves great for the transition for lightweighting. So there, I see it more about primarily a disclosure challenge and a tracking challenge, I'm sure we'll come on to talk about. And then possibly it is then about building new products on top of that so that people can easily identify and acquire metal with the characteristic that they're they're looking for. Thanks. I guess one of the challenges there is by slicing these contracts down, you, you, you can generate issues around liquidity. Drew, any comments on, on, on what Matt just shared? 
Yeah, I mean, I think you made some great points and I'd, I'd echo all of them. Um, the one thing I would add to it is because people have so many different goals. So, for example, you take the LME aluminum contract, great contract, great first step. There's a lot of corporates, particularly in, in the United States, that wouldn't accept large scale hydro as a sustainable a sustainable source. Now, there's there's a lot of arguments around that, but it goes to the point that this isn't driven primarily by regulations. I mean, there's there's various ETSs, you know, in both in the United States and, and obviously in Europe and, and globally to an extent, but everybody has different goals. So I think what we're going to see is a certain base level of standards, to Matthew's point, you know, around certain things like the child labor. When we're talking about polluting and we're talking about carbon, there's so many different opinions that I think there'll be a minimum standard that people need to meet. But beyond that, there'll be a lot of different products you can tack on. And I think we'll see that. So to answer your question, as far as the number of products out there, I think there's, if anything, right now, too many, because there's an infinite number just in the U.S. You have solar X by state. You have carbon credits verified by this person. You have gold standard, blah, 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 blah. Um, and then you have you know regional schemes as well. But you're going to see some standardization within those individual things. But I still think you're going to see a lot of different bespoke products because when you're being primarily driven by you know, sustainability goals for your stakeholders and your investors, different investor bases are going to have different goals there. Different industries are going to have different goals. And there's going to be low-hanging fruit that exists in certain areas that doesn't exist in others. So that's that's kind of how I see it developing is you'll see some contraction of products, not expansion of products, contraction and some standardization. But really, it's going to be a minimum standard with a lot of different things, you know, above and below that, that people can add on to, you know, a standard aluminum contract. Or maybe they have the LME aluminum coupled with uh, offsets to offset the freight. Because when you're, you know, that that's one of the biggest factors when you're talking about, you know, the, the grim aluminum coming from, you know, from Russia or from China or from Brazil, you've got to get it to where it's going. And most of that is not bound towards, you know, other places in, in Siberia, right? So how do you manage around that? And there's there's tools that exist, but it's figuring out how it all fits together. And that's, that's where I think the next 10 years are going to be really interesting in this industry. Hmm. Thanks for that. And I guess staying on the products um, before we move on to profitability and so forth, the big element here is is around carbon pricing. And really, there's a recognition that that is key to solving um, climate challenges. You've alluded to it, Drew. There are multiple different products out there. There's multiple different jurisdictions involved. Are they sufficient for an organization to meet its offsetting goals? Or is it somewhat of a mirage, you know, how you talk about your, the hydro comment. Do we need a global product? Do we need standardization for that to really be effective for not only organizations, but also society? So the answer is yes and no, uh, just, to, just to keep it broad. So it would be ideal if we had a global emissions trading scheme that everybody that everybody participated in, no one cheated, and um, and it was standardized. That would be ideal, at least as far as efficiency of, of reducing emissions. Probably wouldn't be ideal for traders uh, because right now there's so many opportunities with those disconnects that exist, um, you know, even within, you know, the individual ETSs. But there's, um, you know, I think I think we're I think we're in good shape as far as what needs to happen. But you're going to wind up seeing, you know, some of that some of that consolidation. I just don't see a, a global emissions trading scheme occurring, at least not in the next decade. I mean, the U.S. is going to re-engage with the world as a whole, but I just don't see a scenario where the U.S., Europe, China, and Russia, and India, who are the, you know, let's say the primary emitters, all get together and say, you know what, 
let's let's all get our interests aligned and get something that works for everybody. It, it's just not going to happen. So you're going to see some regional consolidation. You might see different people joining, you know, various schemes. I mean, you have California has has uh, you know parts of Canada participating in it, right? So you're going to see more of that, and you're going to see these these 15 things contract to maybe five. Um, and you'll see the individual products within their contract, but I, I don't see the the overall emissions trading, you know, globally. Uh, I just don't see it, except in some certain targeted areas. Uh, Does that make, to you, Matt, I guess, if you want to comment on that, I mean, surely that makes it, there's not this global approach and a standardization that makes it so much harder to bake in these other attributes into existing contracts. Yeah, and I would absolutely agree with, with, with Drew's points earlier that, you know, particularly uh, carbon emissions, the spectrum of what people are looking for is, is so broad. And, and I fully agree that you know, it would not be appropriate. We've had calls at the LME to launch a green aluminium contract. Um, and I think those calls are very genuine and they're well meant. But, but going back to, to Drew's point, I fully agree that that you know, we we haven't done that because there would not be a definition, there would not be an agreement in our market of what green aluminium was. So, so I think the first step, really kind of following on from those comments, is about how can we provide data to people which is verifiable. So the kind of vision that we have, looking at, at the aluminium market as an example. As a first step, you know, we already have this, this big depository where, where the brands register their metal and it can be used to deliver on the LME. We already have to track all of the, the chemical analysis of that metal. What we want to do on a voluntary basis is to allow producers to endorse their metal, those warrants that are used on the LME, with whatever sustainability characteristics they think are relevant. So it might be they want to talk about their carbon footprint. It might be, to Drew's point, it might be they want to say that it comes from a specific renewable source. You know, maybe they want to advertise they use wind power. Or maybe actually they see sustainability more broadly and they want to talk about the human development, which is enabled by their production. Maybe they want to talk about environmental management of bauxite mining. Maybe they want to talk about indigenous rights. I think we should allow that conversation by allowing producers or traders to endorse whatever information that they think is relevant for sustainability, as long as it can be diligence. So I think if it's in there, you have to prove that it's true, but you can disclose what you think is relevant. And I think that starts the conversation because then we can start seeing how the warrants trade. We can see what people are interested in and we can let the market, we can let the people who are buying this stuff start to form their own view on the sustainability characteristics that matter. And I think that's better than trying to have a, 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 a definitive green aluminium product that nobody would agree on the characteristics. Yeah, and I, that points to that product design piece. I guess critically, you've highlighted it there, all of this re relies on trust. We need transparency, you need robust certification, and then tracking subsequently for these but really for these attributes to have to be valued by the market and be trusted by traders. You talk there about kind of self-certification. Um, is that really a, um, is, can we really rely on self-certification and tracking to solve for this? I, I guess, Drew, you can comment on that. Yeah, I mean, I think we rely on self-certification with verification to track just about everything in the corporate world. So if we're talking about financial disclosures or we're talking about an income statement or we're talking about um, diligence around a debt issuance, it's all self-reported. It's then verified by an independent auditor. Uh, so one of the big four or similar. 
And then there's regulators who then ensure that the, you know, that the auditors are following the rules and, you know, and their certifications. So there's three, three levels of verification. There's self-verification, there's the audit, and then there's the regulations. And that's where I think we're going to wind up with this. And this, by the way, is not that difficult to verify. It's just a matter of getting more, more um, uniform standards across, across the world around this. So we're never going to have the exact same verification standards everywhere, but just like you have GAP in the U.S., you have IFRS, they're different, but they're they're fairly similar to the point that that you can trust if you're if you're investing in a European company or U.S. company, um, you know, and similar um, you know similar financial disclosures exist, you know, in most of the world. Um, that's what we're going to see. So if somebody says their carbon emissions are X, somebody can go in and verify it. There's regulators who then go in and verify the verifiers, and then people can be comfortable with it. As far as far as the lack of standardization, uh, one caveat I'd add to that is. This is being driven right now. To an extent, it's being driven by by regulations in parts of the world, but it's really being driven. Where we've seen this market take off in the last two years, not ten years ago, when you know when certain certain um, you know regulations passed, it's by investors. So, you want BlackRock to invest in your company, you have to do what BlackRock wants. And by the way, what BlackRock wants is generally not too far off what Goldman Sachs Asset Management wants and what others want. And so, you get to a position where. Can you make money and and be green? Yes, I, th- I think you can. I think we're seeing that. Um, and I think as far as the trading tra- trading house goes, the fact that there's so many disconnections, this is just another part of the supply chain that people have a chance to monetize. So when they're looking at stuff here versus stuff here, it's no different than, than a trading house making sure there's no locational arbitrage or taking that locational arbitrage out to bring efficiencies. And you get the same thing on the carbon side. So I guess I want to come back to what's driving this change and the profitability that, that potentially is there. You know, you, you, you give the analogy of GARP and IFRS. However, it's fair to say that many of these attributes in whether it's base metals, ags product, they're going to be much more hidden and harder to verify. So, so you, you know, whether it's provenance or whether it's how it's manufactured, also the opportunity for profit is going to be that much higher. These commodities are very fungible. If you're getting a, a significant premium by, Claiming it's from a different destination, you know that is going to potentially drive different behaviours. And whilst there are shareholders out there who want green attributes, there are also others that may not. Is this Matt because there is the the it's so significant to get this verification certification? Is this the opportunity to leverage some of the new technologies available out there, Internet of Things, blockchain, shared ledgers? Is that really a, a future solution? Yeah, so, so maybe just to share the experience that we've had uh, implementing the uh, our responsible sourcing role, rules. So this is effectively making sure that all of the LME producers, the LME brands, again, in the base metal space, implement the OECD due diligence guidance on responsible mineral supply chains. You know, what we've been really pleased to see is the, you know, the real effort made by industry to create industry-wide verification programs. Um, And so each uh, of our metals, the industry body has worked very hard to create uh, an industry program, which is then then alignment assessed against the OECD uh, guidance. And what's great about that is it allows those um, programs to be catered uh, or to be adjusted for, for, the, for, for the specificities of the metal. So, you know, as you say, you know, for, for a metal like cobalt, 
uh, where a huge amount does come from areas where it's harder to track supply chains, such as DRC, and where the value of the metal is such that there is a significant incentive for perhaps blending or disguising origin, etc. You know, clearly, there's a lot more focus there on the actual supply chain. And, and yeah, exactly. Distributed ledger, um, sensor technology, mass balance, all of these, you know, the, these techniques. Whereas if we move to you know, perhaps a more bulk commodity, um, you know, then then that can be adjusted in a different way. So, so you know, what I've been really pleased to see is just how much innovation there has been by industry bodies and then by the companies who are producing solutions to help people achieve these. And I think there's this, there's this real flourishing uh, of, of ideas in our sector. Um, and we, you know, we're not there yet, but there's a huge amount of intellectual capital being plowed into how do we how do we verify um, in an in an effective way? Yeah, and I would add that there's, and I'll use the example of a U.S. integrated steel mill, but the same thing would apply to uh, an integrated aluminum mill in in Russia. It's not that hard to verify most of the stuff. So you know your source of iron ore pellets, you know your source of scrap, albeit not the ultimate source of the scrap probably, but you know the source of coal. And in fact, a lot of the end use customers are going to demand that they know the supply chain from start to finish. And that's for quality reasons, even outside of ESG, right? So you can go back and see what mine it came from, where it got pelletized, where the coke was made out of the coal, what the mine was that the coal came from. Um, so you can verify all this stuff. And it's not that difficult then to see What's the emissions along the chain? And you know, to to Matthew's point, you brought up cobalt. I bring up chrome. I mean, some of the other things that are a little bit a little bit more difficult to track. But the same is true for labor in certain parts of the world, right? So so just like when when a large a large um, you know textile manufacturer is going to send you know a lot more people to you know a, a factory in certain parts of the world than they would to you know say a factory in Western Europe or in the United States. Um, you know, to verify that labor standards are being kept because there's certain areas that are just more vulnerable. And it's the same thing with this, but I don't think it's undoable. I think, in fact, it's not particularly more challenging than um, than verifying labor standards. And it's really a matter of, of having the standards in place, having the penalties in place uh, and doing the legwork and people caring enough to invest that money to to get there. But from a technology perspective, we're, we're there already. You know what the emissions are, you know, for for a ton of aluminum made at this factory by and large. Um, and same thing with steel, uh, same thing with, with really most manufacturing. And I, and I think, so So moving on, ultimately all of this is gonna be driven by, is it is it, is it profitable? And are shareholders and um, is capital pushing this, this element, right? Because whether it's transparency or whether it's um, sustainable attributes, all of that represents a cost to producers and consumers and transparency itself, you know, uh, more efficient markets can challenge trading houses. Is it really, I guess my big question is, is there a commercial appetite out there for this? And are all shareholders pushing for this? Or is actually by relying on shareholders, are we allowing other actors who maybe don't have stakeholders with these values to push a different agenda to, to you, Matt? So, so I, I have a very optimistic view, which is I, I think the, the capitalist system in which we all operate 
is sending the right messages through the supply chain. Now, each actor will take a different view on whether they want to, whether it is in their economic interest to respond to those signals and in what way to do so. But you know, just looking at, at, at supply chains and commodities, it's clear those messages are moving through. And those messages are moving through because there is an economic benefit to heeding those messages, be it you get better financing, be it you get more money for your end commodity, be it that if you don't do it, your commodity becomes unsellable. It could be any combination of those things, but the message is getting through. I, I think you know, clearly we're an exchange, and so we are obsessed with price, right? Price is, is what we produce. Uh, and so I do find it a fascinating kind of convergence of, of the sort of world of ethics and the world of finance, the, the extent to which those signals come out saying that, um, uh, that, that responsible material is worth more than, 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 uh, than less responsible material. Uh, and I think that's going to be a fascinating story. And then secondly, who creates those prices, right? You know, obviously, I, I, I work for an exchange. I'm going to sit here and say exchanges have a role to do it. If you're sitting in a trading house, you might say, well, no, this is this is something that traders will will find. You know, just yet, yeah, it's an OTC market. You know, that kind of doesn't really matter, right? You know, who who produces the pricing is not the big story here. We're all going to pursue our own economic self-interest. But ultimately, as long as those prices get along the value chain, the world's going to become a better place. And I assume, speaking for the traders themselves, I mean, they are somewhat agnostic what they're trading. They just like more products to trade um, and for those tra those products to be reliable and robust and, you know, and represent an underlying economic interest. Is, yeah, is and this, is a, this is a tremendous opportunity. When you get a market that's rapidly growing, that's disconnected, that's global, that has different standards, that's an opportunity for trading houses. And we, you know, we at Mobius, we primarily represent corporate clients. So we're kind of the, the capabilities, technology, middle office, analytics, and, and front office trading staff to kind of give those capabilities to corporate clients that don't have the scale to, uh, you know, to build a trading operation themselves. But what we're advising our clients to do is to say, look, this is no different than when price risk management started to become big in energy uh, 25 years ago or in, you know, in ags 20 years ago or, you know, to an extent, you know, before that. But, you know, as it's become bigger, if you can de-risk your supply chain, Everybody wants to do this, just like everybody wants to de-risk from a price perspective, everybody wants to de-risk from a carbon perspective. So if you're able to go in, de-risk your supply chain, de-risk your suppliers, de-risk your customers, be the person providing that service and charge for it, it's one of the biggest opportunities we see out there right now because this is not going away. Um, when you've got you've got stakeholders and investors, they're far stickier than than regulators and politicians because they're not going anywhere. Um, Biden, Biden might go in four years, somebody else might come in, we don't know. But BlackRock's not going anywhere. So we've got a sticky situation. We've got a disconnected market. We've got tremendous opportunity. And, you know, that's that's the case for trading houses. It's a case for exchanges. It's a case for us as, as an advisory firm. And it's a case for corporate clients if they take the right steps to uh, to recognize the opportunities rather than um, just sitting there and, and taking a price and saying, well, let's, let's build a solar farm in, in London because that's where our factory is and feel smart about it. So you know that that's that's where our heads are, and and that's where we see the opportunities. So, to it is it's better to put a price on carbon now than potentially face remediation and and fines down the down the road. And I hear what you're saying. Is it, however, you know, in a world that's arguably deglobalizing to some extent, is it sufficient from a, a societal standpoint, from a planetary standpoint, to rely on? I guess a certain segment of investors and capital to push these changes through? Or do we actually need 
sort of global regulation? Do we need more sort of in, inter-country um, regulation? Matt, maybe you can talk about that. Yeah, maybe just to give an example of that, because I think it's a fascinating question. So if we look, again, I go back to the, the conflict minerals, and we look at the OECD guidance. So you know, the OECD did a great job kind of in the, in the early 2010s um, in putting together that, that due diligence guidance. And obviously, the intention was that OECD nations were then going to go and implement that into legislation. And indeed, you know, in some places that happened, it actually went into an original Dodd-Frank uh, and then later came out again as part of the, the simplification of Dodd-Frank. Um, it's been going through the EU process and the conflict minerals regulation will come out uh, you know, soon or come into effect soon. But, but what is so great about that story is that it didn't actually need much government intervention. Because industry as a whole said, look, this is the way the world is going. Enough of where we want to sell product is eventually going to demand this stuff. And even if it doesn't, people are going to demand this stuff. Folks are going to demand this stuff. Right. And so industry kind of said, actually, we're not going to wait for government action here. We are going to implement this. And the only reason we've been able to embed those OECD guidance into our brand list. It's not because the LME has any particular power. We were pushing on an open door because supply chains wanted it. So, so look, I mean, it's, I know there's a whole bunch of examples. It's a good example to give, but I am optimistic that industry can do this stuff for itself. Perfect. Yeah. I've got, um, I guess, one final question that's uh, maybe coming to the end of our time, but relatively close to my heart, is if the commodities industry, the sector as a whole, is going to continue to be profitable and, and innovative and all of these things that it's known for right now, it's going to need to attract the uh, the top-tier talent of the future to the sector. It would strike me that it's potentially an existential risk that you know if the sector doesn't have this, this ESG focus, this focus on sustainability, it's going to struggle to capture a new generation uh, of talent around the world who want to join. Is that something that you see, Matt, at all, and, and Drew as well? I mean, I, I don't think I don't see any issue. I mean, it, it, there's the world needs energy, whether the energy is coming from wind or the energy is coming from from solar that then gets stored in batteries or the energy is coming from coal. The world still needs it and the world needs traders, whether it's 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 primarily programmers running algorithms or it's it's people you know designing structured products. The world needs people to take those arbitrage opportunities out. And ESG is kind of the, the primary opportunity of that right now, because you do have so many opportunities there that you wouldn't have in, you know, in something like like say the global crude trade where everybody knows what storage costs are. It's all generally fairly fungible. Um, it's just not the case in carbon, but no, I don't, I, I can't see there's so much opportunity in, you know, when you're talking about commodities, it's, it's just like any other business, you buy stuff and you sell stuff, but it moves so much quicker. I mean, as most of, most of the people watching this know, it's, it's fun. Um, so why would people choose to go into other businesses, but, but not choose to go into this and the ESG risk that, that the commodities business face, I mean, that's just a different, a different spot on the supply chain, either, either upstream or midstream generally, uh, sometimes downstream, but it's just a different spot. So, I mean, kind of to Matthew's point, it, if, if Amazon won't sell it, JP Morgan won't finance it and BlackRock won't invest in it, it doesn't matter what country you're in. We, we've kind of got a global ETS. And the fact that there's not a, a global regulation around it, it just creates opportunities. And you know, the opportunity to take traditional industry and green it up, uh, which is kind of how we how we look at it, and also the opportunity to create new technologies and, and find markets around that. I mean, it's fun, it's interesting. Whether you're an exchange, a trading house, uh, an advisory firm, or a corporate, um, this is this is the fun stuff. 
hundred percent. I mean, you know, exactly as, as as Drew laid out. And you know, I'd even go further. I'd say that you know, when we're hiring graduates, we're hiring you know people early in their career. One of the first questions they will ask us as as the LME, as a prospective employer, is how do you see your business you know, contributing to to a just transition, contributing to the the green revolution, right? So I think you can almost turn the question around and say, can you hire people if you don't have a mind on this stuff? A because, as Drew says, it's really intellectually interesting, and B because you know people now think it's the right thing to do, and it is a huge tool. For, for getting people excited about our industry. Fantastic. I think we would agree as well. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support the show, please give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To find out more about HC Insider and Human Capital, a search firm dedicated to the commodities sector, go to www.hcinsider.global where you'll find more original content on the commodities sector and more details on our offering as a search firm and our locations around the world. Thanks again for listening.